Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. We now join our senior associate pastor, Dr. John Light. Let's turn to Matthew 18 at verse 21. Matthew 18 at verse 21. Continuing our study, our summer Sunday evening study in the, in the parables, some of the parables from the Gospel of Matthew. I'm reading this evening about the parable of the unforgiving servant, beginning at verse 21. Hear God's word. Then... Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times, Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, and seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt." so also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Lord, we pray that you would open our eyes, open our ears, open our hearts as we've just sung to your word. May you speak to our hearts by the power of the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Here's the main point of what I want to say. The gospel of Jesus Christ is very good news. It's good news because faith in, in, through faith in Christ, we are forgiven of all of our sins and brought into fellowship with the living God, into a right relationship with Him. But it is also very good news because the new life that we have in Christ and by the power of Christ gives us a new power to forgive others as we have been forgiven by God. That's wonderful news. Because the biblical call to forgive those who sin against us is a high and holy, costly calling. And it's contrary to the natural man. 
And as we see what a high calling this is, we know that we only can obey in the strength that Jesus Christ gives us and the love that he has poured into our hearts by the Spirit. There is an amazing account in the narrative of missions work of the advance of the gospel in the islands of the South Pacific in the 1800s when what we would say would be the modern missions movement of the 1800s finally reached into those parts of the South Pacific. There was much fruit of the gospel in the islands of Fiji, and these new Christians ended up going in a number of waves of them by boat to the islands of what was then called the New Hebrides. And the risk was so great for those islanders as they went, and the opposition was so strong that many were killed. And the Fijians built and took coffins with them when they went. Maybe you've read that story before. One story has it that one day news was received about a young man's death, one of these islanders who had gone with the gospel, and his brother immediately got up and began to work. And when he was questioned, what are you doing? His reply was, I am building my coffin for I must take my brother's place in the work of the gospel. Interesting response, isn't it? To having your brother killed by this other island group. That is a response that shows the power of Christ's love and forgiveness in the Christian's heart to give a new power to love and to forgive others as Christ has forgiven us. What do we learn from this parable that Jesus tells when Peter asks about forgiving a brother who has sinned against him? And we all hear this, should it be seven times? Peter was probably rounding up. That's a nice you know, meaningful number in the Bible and in the Old Testament. And Jesus says 77 times. Not that on the 78th time you don't forgive. And he tells this parable, a parable about really our own hearts. It's a parable that teaches what I would call heart forgiveness. The attitude of heart forgiveness is, is something every Christian is called to by Christ. Whether or not there can be relational forgiveness, which I would distinguish from the kind of attitude of heart that Jesus is speaking about here, whether there can be reconciliation or whether or not the other person is repentant uh, or whether that other person even acknowledges any sin or wrongdoing. Heart forgiveness, you see, is very closely tied into and linked to the command to love your enemies in Matthew 5:44 for blessing those who persecute you that's very closely it's almost different words of describing the same attitude or in Luke 6:28 doing good to those who hate you and praying for those who abuse you heart forgiveness is about your heart before God and the only alternative to heart forgiveness is anger and resentment leading to bitterness and vindictiveness. 
And the wonderful news of the gospel is that through the love of Jesus Christ poured out into our own hearts through forgiveness and new life in him, we can more and more have the mind of Jesus Christ towards those who sin against us. Whether it's small, ordinary, everyday kinds of sins or massive, life-changing offenses that we never forget and yet we can forgive. You might think of this heart attitude of forgiveness as the grace of long-suffering. In verse 26, the servant asks the king for mercy, and he says, have patience with me. And the word for have patience is actually the word long-suffering, as it's sometimes translated in other places in the New Testament. Macrothumia, long to get hot or slow to get hot, we might say. Someone has described this in this way, that the inner power to bear injuries without retaliation. The inner power to bear injuries without retaliating or without melting down, we might say. In other words, someone sins against us, but we do not melt down. We are not shaped by that offense. We do not lose uh, our inner joy in Christ. We do not let the sin against us lead us to sin in return. And this is not a passive thing. It's a very active thing. It's, it's an active choice by the power of the Spirit and standing in the gospel. It's a way of freedom in a world where sins and offenses for all of us are an inescapable part of our lives. Isn't it just the world in which we live? Let me say before we go any further that it's very easy for most of us to read this parable and think about this and think, oh, this really isn't a problem for me. And, um, you know, I'm not filled with resentment. I'm not controlled by a spirit of revenge. But I would say that all of us have to beware that we are not fully sanctified in this life. We don't know. Uh, Maybe we feel like we're doing okay right now, but at any time, our hearts can be very wrong. Hebrews 12, 15 says, See to it that no one misses the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many And here the author of Hebrews is using the illustration of a root uh, to make his point in this case. You know, like a tree is cut down, but the root's still there. And some of you may have trees like that in your yard that little shoots keep coming out of the stump of the tree. In other words, the roots are still alive and the new growth springs up. And that's the kind of thing that we have to watch in our hearts. That it might not be evident to many people around us, but... Uh, there's a connection. Our hearts are like a root system and, and unforgiveness works in hidden ways and we may tend to minimize it and to say we're not angry, but it's there. Someone really hurts us and we think to ourselves, well, that's not really affecting me. Um, maybe it's a friend in the church. Maybe it's a family member who is dear to us. Maybe it's someone at your school or at your work. And it's very easy to deny what's happening in our hearts and the anger 
that may be there and how much that root is still affecting us. And until there is this incredibly thorough act of forgiveness that we are about to talk about here, and that not only has to be done initially, but we have to reaffirm it in our hearts again and again, especially for sins that are of a more major kind. Unless we are continuing to go to the Lord in His power and forgive, that anger affects us and we can be hardened and we can become cynical and we can move into self-pity and we need to beware of that response. What do we learn from this parable about this grace of forgiveness? Well, first of all, we learn forgiveness means that you bear the emotional cost of a wrong done to you. You bear the cost instead of seeking revenge in some way. Again, let me say, I'm not talking about here that there aren't related subjects such as the need for confrontation or restitution or even maybe more dramatic actions such as a a legal recourse in some cases. The scripture has a lot to say about those things. But I'm talking here about heart forgiveness that is required of all of us whether it's a small or whether it's a large offense, the kind of attitude that Stephen, the deacon Stephen in the book of Acts chapter 7 exhibited when he was being stoned to death by, and Saul was holding the cloaks of those who did this, and he prays to God for God not to hold this sin against them. That's the kind of attitude of forgiveness. And of course, what Jesus on the cross prayed. In our parable, we find that the king canceled the debt of this man. And one of the almost humorous points of this parable, and I'm sure as Jesus' hearers heard it for the first time, they must have had a smile on their face when they heard that the debt was 10,000 talents. You know, that doesn't compute with us, but think of it this way. The wage of an ordinary laborer in that day was one, for one year, was one talent. Okay, so think of a talent like $40,000 maybe. And take that times 10,000, so that would, e- that would equate to $400 million, a half a billion dollars. So this is a massive debt. No way could he pay this. He was obviously, he wouldn't have been a household servant to the king. This is, must have been... Uh, someone who had been a a high-ranking official of some kind, and either through terrible mismanagement or squandering of his king's money, or more likely we would tend to think through massive corruption, he has brought about this debt. And so at this very great cost, a massive cost, a cost that might have affected the king's very kingdom, the king cancels the debt. And this cancellation of debt represents the cost of forgiveness. You do not take revenge. You do not make the person pay. You bear a cost in yourself. And of course, Christians bear that cost in themselves, but unto the Lord with his strength, looking at him for grace, finding the love of Christ as our source. But maybe it would be helpful for us to think of this cost as 
And one of the most fundamental ways as an emotional cost. To forgive, there's an emotional cost. You do not make the other person pay this down. You pay it down. Turn it around and think of it this way. What is the natural way of handling this emotional debt? What is the world's way? Well, there are lots of different ways to make someone pay. Again, if it's the person that hurts you, you might be harsh. You might be especially cold to them. You may try to hurt them back and attack them in some, some way. You might try to make them pay in indirect ways by gossiping about them or slandering them, trying to ruin their reputation, probably in some way despising them or looking at them as beneath you. And even if you don't inflict the pain, if somebody else somehow inflicts pain or you find out that they're experiencing the pain, that it makes you feel better somehow. I mean, isn't this a typical movie theme? That the bad guy, you know, you love to see the ending when the tables are turned and the bad guy, you know, there's justice and vengeance. And sometimes, you know, the hero is inflicting this, of course. But even if you might feel a little bit better by doing this, the result of this worldly way of paying the debt is that you are affected. In a sense, the evil passes into you in some way, and you are reformed in a sense. You are melted down, and there's a hardening, and there's a distortion, and there's the creation of a a self-pitying, bitter spirit. And to some extent, we all know what that's like. But instead of making the other person pay that emotional debt, a hard attitude of forgiveness means that you forgive. In a sense, you pay the cost. That's what the king did. You absorb the cost of it. And how is that done? Every time you want to meditate on what was done, you choose not to do that. Every time that you want to make that person pay, you don't. Every time you want to gossip about them to somebody else, you don't do that. And you don't even do that in your imagination. You continue to repent and turn away from attitudes that don't glorify Jesus Christ our Lord. And I'm not saying that we perfectly do that, but we seek to do that in the power of Jesus Christ. You actually, as Scripture says, you actually bless them and pray for them, for their spiritual well-being, and you forgive them. A very costly, radically different reaction And if you, and as you do that, the emotional pain and the anger will eventually decrease. And how long would that take? Well, it depends on how great the offense is. It might take hours or days. It might take months or years if it's a great offense. But that is the way ahead to follow the commands of Jesus Christ and the power that he gives. And as you do that, you're not twisted inside. And eventually... The way of love wins out, at least in your own heart. So forgiveness means that you bear the cost instead of taking revenge. But secondly, forgiveness requires a Christ-like compassion. A Christ-like compassion for the other person. Verse 27 says of the king, And out of pity for him, the man with this debt, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. 
He had compassion on him. That word took pity can also be translated had compassion. That's, if you think of it, that's a word that the gospel accounts often use of Jesus Christ. He has compassion on the people who are like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus was, he saw the multitudes and he was moved with compassion. He had pity on them. And how did Jesus Christ have compassion on us? Isn't it fundamentally that he identified with us? He became a man to die for us. When someone sins against us, the natural reaction is to focus on how different we are from that individual, how especially sinful they are, or we would never do that. They are so different from me. They are so bad. Instead of that reaction, we must make a conscious decision to have compassion on that person, at least in our hearts. And so we identify with him or her, and we humble ourselves in our own mind and before the Lord in a love and in a compassion for that person that reminds us of our commonalities. I mean, doesn't our Reformed theology strongly confess that we are all sinners and equal before the cross of Christ, but don't we easily forget that when we compare ourselves to someone who sinned against us? Suddenly we're righteous and they are not. We believe strongly that we're all sinners, saved by grace and kept by grace. Someone has described it in this way, what we're called to do. When someone injures us, we tend to make a caricature of them in our minds. Kids, a caricature is like a drawing that has parts of your face exaggerated. It's not really accurate. We went to a high school reunion years ago, and I won one of the three door prizes that enabled a friend in our class to draw a caricature of us. So, you know, for a couple minutes, I went over behind this sheet, this screen, and he drew a caricature of me. And, you know, this was supposed to be a prize. <laughs> but I showed it to Patty, and I said, this is never seeing the light of day, you know. <laughs> My forehead was all big, and I was especially bald, even though I wasn't as bald as I am now, and, you know, just different parts of my face. It looked terrible. I didn't want to look at it. I think we stuck it under our bed for a couple of weeks, and then I threw it out, you know. That was it. Um, but a caricature of someone emphasizes the worst features of them. And that's what an attitude of unforgiveness does. It's not compassionate. It does not see them as what we might, we might look at ourselves and see ourselves as complex. It doesn't look at them that way. It looks at them in light of their sin and failure and not in light of everything that they are and what they might be as made in the image of God. And the reason we do this is because we have such a strong desire to justify ourselves out of our pride and out of our fear and out of our hurt. And so when someone sins against us, we react and we would say, I never would have done that. So to have compassion on someone means that we are Christ-like in identifying with them in terms of making the best assumptions about them that we can. Maybe not judging their hearts as if we know their hearts and can read their minds. It's what historically has been called the judgment of charity. We tend to be very charitable judging our own hearts and very uncharitable sometimes in judging those around us. And so the king 
forgave this debt. You wonder how he did that. If it was corruption, and Jesus, of course, doesn't tell us all of this, it would have been harder to forgive that debt, wouldn't it? Maybe the king, this is pure speculation, maybe the king just chalked it up to mismanagement. But the question for us about this second point is how can we have experienced the love and compassion of Christ and not show that same compassion to those who sin against us? Forgiveness requires Christ-like compassion. And finally, true forgiveness is the fruit of the supernatural grace of God. It's the fruit of the supernatural grace of God. There are many ways to bring about a form of morality or virtue in our lives. Um, We heard this morning that if we go past a police car that stopped on the road, do we tend to slow down, you know? Well, that's an external restraint, right? Or uh, for years, when our kids were growing up, you'd see those signs, don't do drugs. That's the government's way of giving external, you know, moral guidance. Or you might, we might think, if I do this, I'll ruin my life. Everyone I love will be shamed and affected. There's all kinds of motives for external restraint, But the radical forgiveness that is described here is only the result and can only be the result of a heart that is radically changed by Jesus Christ in the new birth. Message of Scripture is not that you must will yourself to be good. No, the message of Scripture is you must be born again by the Spirit. And it's out of that new birth, that new life, that we begin to show and take baby steps in true Christ-centered fruit, such as forgiving others from our hearts. It involves following Christ's example, yes, but even much, much more, it requires the power of Jesus Christ within us. And what was so wicked about this servant was that he treated his fellow servant so wrongly and so unmercifully when he had just been forgiven. What an evidence that there was no grace in this servant's life. He, he, the, again, the humorous thing, he, he meets this man and begins to choke him. You know, give me the $10 you owe me. Here he's been forgiven, you know, $400 million. And he has this friend or this fellow employee put in prison. Obviously, for that person, the king's example was not enough. He still had an evil heart. There was no change within his soul. And that's apparently the reason why the king king did what he did, had him turned over to the jailers to be tormented until he paid it all, which would be never. Really a picture of hell. A hard attitude of forgiveness is not something that you can simply will into being by your own strength. You need a heart made new. You need an experience and maybe a fresh experience of the love of Jesus Christ poured out in your hearts. Chris preached the other week on Ephesians 4, 32 and chapter 5, verse 1. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as 
beloved children. Some translations say dearly loved children. What is Paul getting at there? He calls us to forgive. He calls us to imitate God and Christ, but he reminds us that we do so out of being beloved children of God in Christ. Forgive as dearly loved children. Do you know that you are a dearly loved child of God through faith in Jesus Christ? If not, may you come to Him this evening, tonight, this week, as you seek Him. And if you do know Jesus Christ, and if you have been wronged by someone, and that will happen often in this world, then remember afresh the love of Jesus Christ and the great debt that has been paid on your behalf. This servant was acting like a king. He was setting himself up as a judge. Don't we all do that? The solution for you and for me, as someone has said, is to behold the king who came as a servant. I love that phrase. Behold the king who came as a servant. Jesus came knowing that he would bear the cost, knowing that that he would pay the debt. Look at what Jesus Christ did. Receive it by faith. Receive him by faith. And he will work in your heart that spirit of forgiveness that he alone enables us to exhibit. Let us pray. Father, thank you for the love of Jesus Christ. Please pour out that love in each of our hearts as we seek to live by faith this week, as we experience the ups and downs of life in this fallen world. Lord, may we have our eyes fixed on Jesus Christ. May the mind of Jesus Christ, our Savior, dwell in us powerfully, we pray. In his name we ask it. Amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.